I don't think the deal is fair. You don't think it's no, fair? No, no, no. I found the place. I set the whole thing up. I'm doing all the legwork. What legwork? Oh, there's legwork. If anything, you're getting too much. <laughs> too much? That's right. They're my coats. Okay, look, I want 35%. I'm thinking more like 15. No way I've taken 15. Well, you're not getting 35. All right, let's compromise. 25%. Okay, it's a deal. Well, I don't want to be a secondary character. Hello, Ivan. Hello, Stephen. And hello to you, our listeners. We are, but I don't want to be a secondary character. We're an Australian podcast, and every week we take a random Seinfeld episode and examine the secondary characters from it. This week we're doing a double episode, The Raincoats. Yes, Season 5, Episodes 18 and 19. And Stephen, I don't think we have too many two-part episodes left, mate. I think the only one we have remaining is The Bottle Deposit. I think we've done the rest of them. Yeah, no, we've done The Trip and The Boyfriend and the unofficial two-parters as well, like mm. uh, the Bubble Boy and the Cheever Letters and the Virgin and the Contest. Yeah, I think you're right. Yes. We've only got one two-parter left. So uh, everything's coming <laughs> to an end. It is coming to an end. We're down to our last 25, 20 so episodes. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, it's pretty sad. So but at least we, we haven't done all the good ones and, you know, there's some average episodes left. There's some good ones to come. Next week's a good one. So, yeah, we're looking forward to those. Yeah, no, we've still got uh, about six months worth of episodes left and we do have a few little uh, surprises as well that we're going to pepper in between now and... And uh, when we finish up around March. In the mm. meantime, if you want to email us, you can. Podcast at gmail.com is our email. Uh, we're on all forms of social media as well. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Reddit. And our handle is at B-I-D-W-B-A-S-C on all of those. Uh, you can listen to all of our previous episodes on your podcast app of choice. We'd really, really love it if you were to be so kind as to review us or rate us or even just tell a friend about us. Uh, that would be really, really cool. And uh, if you want to go the extra mile, you can support us financially as well. Yes, you can support us with one-off payments through PayPal, or you can go on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash B-I-D-W-B-A-S-C. And like our current four patrons, Holly, Nakia, Neil, and Jeff, for $2 a month or thereabouts, you get access to this episode earlier than everyone else, as well as bonus podcasts, Curbcast, which we're into season three by now, as well as season 11 and our back catalogue of previous bonus episodes. So check those out. Yeah, no, we have a whole bunch of uh, bonus content. We've done a bunch of movie reviews. We've done a couple of interviews views, a few other special episodes, uh, special themed episodes. And uh, yeah, we have just started, as Ivan said, uh, season three of Curbcast. We've already recorded the first two episodes and uh, so far it's been pretty fun. Mm, it has. It's been great. Yeah. And uh, finally, we do have the biggest Seinfeld group on Facebook, Seinfeldisms. Check that out. Uh, as of recording, we will have ticked over 100,000 members, uh, Incredible. which is just mind-blowing. Keep saying it pretty much every week. I started the group about a year and a half ago, basically as an extension to our Seinfeldism segment in the podcast, which we'll be doing in just a minute and the group has just exploded and it's fantastic we've got all sorts of cool sponsors coming on board as of today actually uh, we do have a new sponsor for the next couple of weeks mid-october to late october we have the awesome company in america um, who make the uh, replica set of jerry's apartment uh, they're on board uh, and they're offering 20 percent off the recommended retail price normally it's 500 dollars us which is quite expensive but it is a beautiful piece and i think only 500 were made so uh, if you are a super fan and you do like collecting some Seinfeld memorabilia. Check that out because you can get $100 off and that is only available unfortunately to US and Canadian customers. So uh, thanks guys for coming on board and uh, we have a whole bunch of awesome stuff coming up as well. We'll be working with Kenny Kramer that was due to go live towards the end of this year but it's been pushed to early next year um, mm. but that's really exciting as well and we'll uh, slowly leak out some more details over the next month or two as things come to light. Yes, we'll be doing the leaks to get people excited. Yes, yes. We'll be, uh, <laughs> we'll be leaking like Poppy on a couch. Oh, no. <laughs> won't be as messy, though. No, no, no. We won't We won't be turning over cushions. There'll be leaks that everyone will want to sit on. Uh, absolutely, yes. <laughs> anyway, speaking of Seinfeld isn't my friend, let's kick off the show. I have one this week, buddy. My uh, book, Jerry Seinfeld, Is This Anything?, has arrived in the mail. Oh, yeah. And uh, have you managed to read it yet? I haven't had a chance. I've got another book that I'm just finishing up now, but I'm going to get into that. I've heard some good things about it, and uh, I might give that a, a read, and then I'll, I might read Sign Language again. It's been a few years, the one you gave me way back when. Yeah, and maybe just compare the two and uh, explore Jerry's work. It'd be very interesting to see five decades of his content. Yeah, um, I mean, five decades of anything is a lot, but if Jerry's literally gone through and picked the best of his content over 50 years, it should be an absolute banger of a read. And uh, it's kind of timed well in a way because... Uh, 
our social restrictions here in Melbourne might be easing up to the point where we may be able to record in person or at least see each other in person. So hopefully in a couple of weeks when you've gotten around to reading it, I'll be able to borrow it and give it a read myself. Absolutely. I'll be sure to sanitize it first before I give yeah. it to you, of course. COVID of course. safe. And, all yeah, that. <laughs> and, and you know even without even if COVID wasn't a thing I would expect you to sanitize it anyway in the, in the <laughs> spirit of uh, Putty's germophobia and Jerry's just sort of pedantic neatness yes and I'll make sure not to bring it into the bathroom like Brentano's yeah otherwise yeah. the book will be worth nothing and you just can't return it you know I'll, I'll send it back to where I got it from the bookstore and then they'll be like hmm this has been used in the bathroom how did you know yeah. <laughs> they can just we'll tell <laughs> they just know <laughs> the first time we meet out in public like at a park or something you know we'll I'll, we'll both use a public bathroom and I'll uh, I'll be in the you know in front of the tap and you'll come out and I'll see you not wash your hands and then later in the day you'll be like hey you want to borrow my book and I'll just shake my head like mm-hmm. <laughs> come on have a page have yeah, a page like, come on Stephen one page one page yes no. um, <laughs> but fingers crossed I mean for people who are living in Victoria especially in Melbourne where we are I know it's been pretty hard but hopefully you know we get some good news this weekend and we can at least see our family and friends and hopefully no five kilometer radius which we currently have or five kilometer limit at the moment hopefully they get rid of that too and we can all hang out again yeah no uh hopefully we can all hang out like the call for it monks that's right anyway what are your signvoldisms my friend uh so i've got three this week the last few weeks oh try so uh coming back with the bang this week um the first two are pretty typical uh one was a mention of seinfeld on the uh latest episode of talking sopranos um, which is a weekly episode by episode discovery of or not discovery rediscovery of uh the sopranos by michael imperioli and stephen schripper who are two actors yes can't remember exactly what was said but Stephen Tripper said something about comedy in New York or something and because Sopranos was set in New Jersey obviously they talk about New York a lot and uh, Michael Imperioli who plays Christopher on the show on the Sopranos said something about like yeah just like Jerry Seinfeld or I, I don't know it was a good it was a good reference nice yeah the second one was an unexpected but still kind of typical Seinfeld reference on a show uh, my partner and I just started watching a brand new show that was recommended by a friend who might listen to this podcast uh, if you do, you know who it is. He recommended a show to us called Patriot, um, which I'd never heard of, but uh, it's fantastic. It's on Amazon Prime. And uh, this is right. just a free plug because I, you know, we obviously like talking about uh, other shows we like aside from Seinfeld. We're about halfway through season one. And it's about this intelligence officer who's like a CIA officer who has to go into Iran and pose as a nuclear technician to help them uh, well, to help the American government destabilize Iran's uh, nuclear program. So it's kind of, you know, related to real life and what's been happening in the last 10 or 20 years. But he's almost he's also this like really sensitive folk singer. So he's, he's like he's a spy who kills people, but he's also this like introverted, awkward folk singer. And him having to be this hard CIA guy and also this like emotionally sensitive, awkward dude is it creates all these weird situations and it, it's very, very good. Anyway, there's a scene where him and this guy, he lives in Amsterdam for a while and there's uh, a scene where him and this guy who he meets in a bar and they bond over their love of obscure folk music. They start to get drunk and they just crap on about music all night. They're just like, yeah, this band and that band and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and um, they start playing this game where they go one, two, three. And one of them has to say favorite TV show or favorite movie or favorite song or whatever. And Yeah, uh, it's all spur in the moment. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's, you know, it's like a spontaneous, almost like a quiz. And um, the main guy asks his new friend who he meets in the bar, one, two, three, favorite TV show. And the other guy goes, Seinfeld. And they both go, and they both talk <laughs> about their love for Seinfeld. So it was, yeah, tremendous show and completely out of the blue, uh, a mention of Seinfeld. And then I also think the next question is favorite character on a TV show. And they both say Elaine Bennis, which, you know, mm. is probably ours as well. Jeez, Seinfeld's permeating through podcasts and TV in every kind of media these days. Crazy. Yeah, and this show, this show, it was only around 2015 to 2016. So it's, you know, it's five years old, but, you know, even that was sort of before the second rena- renaissance of Seinfeld, which we kind of accidentally, you know, rode the wave of and are still riding the wave of. But um, you know, even, yeah. And, you know, even 2015 when Seinfeld wasn't as popular as it is now, um, you know, just in the general zeitgeist, uh, it's still making its way into random weird TV show scripts. It's just, it's, it's just so, so, so baked into pop culture. Absolutely. And the third and final Seinfeldism, uh, again, unexpected, but uh, quite Excellent. Uh, recently, I went for a walk with my partner. We went into a coffee shop in uh, Richmond called Horse to Water. And um, again, not being paid for this, but they make excellent coffee. So if you happen to be in Abbotsford or Richmond, check them out. They have a wall of Seinfeld illustrations. There's about 20, 15 or 20 framed pictures, all done by a local Melbourne artist. I didn't catch the name of him. Um, if I do, if I happen to find out who it is, I'll give him a little plug on our social media because he's fantastic. Uh, and the print 
prints, I believe, are for sale. And yeah, they're, they're fantastic. Like you look at them really closely and they're like, they're almost like fine art detailed. They're just absolutely amazing. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Fabulous. Yeah. Well, take some so, photos next time. Well, I did actually take a photo and I put it on oh, the oh, this you did. Uh, Instagram, but I'll actually chuck it yep. now that I've mentioned it on uh, this podcast, I'll, I'll chuck it on the uh, Bidwabask Instagram as well, just so you can have a absolutely. look. Absolutely. It's, it's, you know, there's you go into coffee shops and art galleries and stuff and you always see like little Seinfeld illustrations, you know, even in like quirky shops that sell cards, you know, like Seinfeld is a pretty common TV show that illustrators use to design things but the level of details in these are just unlike anything i've ever seen that would just oh wow absolutely mind-blowingly awesome living in the wrong area <laughs> <laughs> would you move house just to be around more potential signfordisms yes oh, okay we'll see how <laughs> no, I, probably not we'll see how your partner feels about that <laughs> yeah i don't think she'd be happy with it no why are we moving again oh yeah um the, the rent's cheaper over there no, it's the rent. This is yeah, ca- yeah yeah the rent the rent yeah there's this cafe in richmond that has very nice seinfeld portraits yeah. Oh, and what are the other reasons? What other reasons? That's it. What else? <laughs> That's it. What, else? What, are, what other reasons do I need? Yeah. What more do you want? Yeah. Anyway, we've been uh, waffling <laughs> on a bit. Those are my three Seinfeldisms for the week. And uh, Very good. Yeah. So uh, a good a good comeback for the Seinfeldisms. I think for both of us, it's been a bit dry for the last few weeks. Yeah, they have. But uh, you've got some, uh, speaking of being dry, you've got some Seinfeld news pieces to go through, all five of them. So I guess you might as well bash them out. Uh, well, there's actually only four. I was going to include a fifth one, but it is a bit political in <sighs> nature. And we do tend to avoid the politically uh, slanted or themed news items on this show. Yes, so I think I'll, I know I'll the one that. you're talking about. Yeah, I'll drop that one off. Yeah. And it's not too Seinfeldy, so it's not super uh, important. But the remaining four are quite excellent. The first right. one, and I think it's uh, appropriate to start off on this because this year has seemed quite grim in a lot of ways. Obviously, COVID and a whole bunch of other things have uh, led to this general feeling of despair. Larry David, the well-known creator of Seinfeld or co-creator and uh, sole creator, of Curb Your Enthusiasm got married again. So congratulations to him. Yeah. So some, uh, like I said, some welcome good news. He's 73. He married his now wife, Ashley Underwood. Uh, they've been going around uh, out for about three years. Um, I don't actually have the specific date when they got married, but it was about a week or two ago. So I think the first week of October and an article in the New York Times actually delves a bit into how they met and uh, they met sitting next to each other at a birthday party for Sasha Baron Cohen, which is pretty cool. In that article, David actually, uh, it was an interview as well. And um, he said that uh, much to her surprise, I left before dessert and he left because he was doing so well banter wise that he didn't want to risk staying too long and uh, blowing the good impression. So he thought he'd, uh, he'd uh, see himself out while, uh, you know, while he made a good impression, which it almost sounds like a Seinfeld script, you know, that, that it, it does. Yeah. Or even a curb script, you know, throwing a few fucks and shits and you can make it work. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, no, that is a Seinfeld script. I can't remember the episode where George, you know, when he, uh, you know, when he makes a good call, he sees himself out. He's like, all right, I'm out. I'm done. So it's, yeah, yeah, I, I forgot. Yeah, yeah, but yeah he does. I'm talking about. It goes yes. off on a high. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think it's yeah. a season eight episode. Yeah. Yeah, it's a later episode. Um, yeah. Yeah. So congratulations to Larry and Ashley, and uh, I hope they have many, many happy years together. Good luck to them. Yes. Anyway, speaking of uh, Larry, there's something special that's happened this week. Yeah, definitely. Um, not news per se, but uh, definitely worth acknowledging, um, especially because we've just talked about Larry David, and it's kind of another. Well, it is another anniversary for him in that Curb Your Enthusiasm turned twenty, and it's purely by coincidence uh, that it's on the same day that we're recording this, which is October 15, 2020. The first episode of Curb, The Pants Tent, aired on October 15, 2000, which is- Yes, with Larry's imaginary boner. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And we did mention it at the top of the show, but uh, we have done uh, season one and two of Curb Your Enthusiasm in your more typical podcast style. And uh, those are available, or season one of Curbcast, um, which is our B podcast, is available on our normal feed. So if you want to hear our take on uh, not only the Pants Tent, but all of the other season one episodes, just scroll back in your feed and you will find those, uh, I believe, late 2019 from memory. I think that's where they sit. Thereabouts, uh, before COVID hit. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So uh, yeah, two cool celebrations for Larry, one being a new wife and the second being the 20th anniversary of Curb Your Enthusiasm. So a, a nice little run for Larry, I think. Yeah, nice little milestone week for him. Yeah. And um, just on that 20th anniversary mention, The Independent, which is a UK newspaper, they actually did a really good article to commemorate the 20th anniversary. And um, it's almost like a, an oral history of the show or the beginnings of the show, I should say. And um, in the interview, you do hear from Richard Lewis. He talks about his relationship with Larry before the show and how how that sort of influenced their character relationship in the show, um, which provides a lot of comedy. Um, and also they talked to a guy named JB Smoove and another
another guy named Richard Kind. I don't know their exact involvement in the show, but they may have been writers or producers. They were heavily involved um, and a few other people as well. So it's a good little you know insight into beginnings of the show and what it's like to work with Larry and, and stuff. So uh, yeah, check that out. We'll have a link to that in our show notes. I think Richard and JB, they're actors and I think JB turns up later and Richard oh, maybe okay. as well. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, no, they're, they're actors, I'm pretty sure. But no, we haven't quite gone to them yet because this is the first time we're seeing Cobra Enthusiasm as we do the B podcast. <laughs> so we're kind of surprising ourselves. We didn't. We don't want to know too much far ahead what's going on. So we'd rather surprise ourselves and we might catch up with JB and Richard later on. Yeah, no, we'll uh, we'll we'll talk about them when they um when they turn up in the show. The third bit of news is an interview that Jerry Seinfeld did with Steve Martin, actually. So two. Um, oh, Steve Martin. There. Cool. Yeah, and it was part of last week. So the first week of October was the first annual online New Yorker festival. That being the New Yorker magazine. Normally, it's a a real world event, but like everything, it's online these days. And Jerry Seinfeld and Steve Martin both. Uh, conducted interviews with a really well-known interviewer who works with a New Yorker named Susan Morrison. Obviously, they talked about uh, comedy, COVID, uh, they touched a bit on politics. But the most interesting point is that Jerry Seinfeld actually talked about paying attention as an audience member, which is, uh, you know, a nice little thing that he talked about, which normally doesn't like typically interviews for comedians tend to follow the same script with maybe an interesting different point here or there. But yeah, a nice little sort of a topic that he hasn't really, well, I haven't, I haven't read or heard that he's talked about before. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, I've got to check that out. Yeah. And, and um, like a lot of other articles, that link will be in the show notes as well. Um, Indeedy. So the fourth and final bit of news is a pretty obscure and uh, almost missed by myself interview that Jason Alexander did. I think it was done in late September. So it's not super current, um, but still worth reporting. Again, in the interview, uh, like the previous one I mentioned with uh, Jerry Seinfeld and Steve Martin, he covers all the topics, you know, Seinfeld, his uh, theater career, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, he actually mentioned, um, and again, I hadn't heard this before, that he copped quite a bit of abuse after he was cast as George and during the sort of golden era of Seinfeld, you know, mid 90s to the late 90s, not because of anything to do with Seinfeld. That obviously brought him a lot of fandom and love. But uh, on the opposite end of the, I guess, fan reception uh, spectrum, he copped a lot of physical or nearly physical and uh, a lot of verbal abuse on the street because of the role he played in Pretty Woman. I haven't seen Pretty Woman in a long, long time, but I know that he is a um, supporting actor in it. And I do believe his character is maybe not that nice of a person. Yeah. And because of that role and because he was so well known and so like publicly lauded in the 90s and that brought him so much attention from Seinfeld, um, he also copped this other you know group of people giving him shit for something that had nothing to do with Seinfeld. So yeah, very strange to me that people would you know uh, verbally abuse someone that first of all, that they don't even know and two that they're playing mm. a character like jason alexander's one of the nicest most charming affable people i've ever seen interviewed in any way and i'm sure he's like yeah. that in his private life and the fact that people take a character he plays so seriously and so personally that they have to abuse him is is just so, so confusing to me. Well, unfortunately, a lot of people, they can't really distinguish reality from fantasy. So they some people think that Jason is George and that's yeah. him in real yeah. life. Some some people can't really, like the lines are blurred for some people. So I think that's where a lot of the abuse comes from. Uh, yeah. But yeah, his character in Pretty Woman was very seedy. Like he tried and to, you know, sexually assault Julia Roberts's character oh. at the end and all that stuff. And yeah, it's pretty, he's like a sleazy guy. He's meant to be like Richard Gere's lawyer, I think. Right. And um, yeah, he's like married and he tries to hook up with Julia's character, uh, but she's not keen on him. So yeah, he appears a few times in the movie, but yeah, he's pretty, uh, pretty seedy. And right. because he thinks, because she's a prostitute, she'll just put out. Right. Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't yeah. respect. That's right. Yeah, so it's pretty full on. <laughs> well, uh, I'll, yes. have to, I'll have to watch that and see if I feel the way that these random uh, abusers feel about a, yes. a movie. <laughs> oh, there you go. So, <laughs> horses for courses. <laughs> yes, and uh, that is all the Seinfeld news for the week. Very good, buddy. That was a really long introduction, uh, but let's have a really quick break, and we're going to come back and talk about some secondary characters from a double episode of The Raincoats, parts one and two. Hi, this is Zach. And Aaron from Seinfeld Law. And uh, you are listening to But I Don't Want to Be a Secondary Character. The Raincoats first aired in the US on April 28th, 1994, and it is from Season 5, Episodes 18 and 19. Directed by Tom Sharones and written by Tom Gamble, Max Prost, Larry David, and Jerry Seinfeld. In this two-part episode, Jerry's parents are visiting before leaving for France. Jerry has a hard time connecting with his new girlfriend, Rachel, played by Melanie Smith, because his parents are spending so much time in his apartment. Cramping his style. <laughs> 
Yes. George uses the trip to get out of volunteering for the Big Brother program, but he's stunned to learn that his little brother, Joey, played by Jason Maneri, is searching for his dad in France. Kramer and Morty team up to sell Morty's old beltless trench coat, the executive, to a vintage clothing store, and Kramer thinks that they're back in fashion. So he thinks, uh, you know, with Kramer, he loves his get-rich-quick schemes, and he thinks this is one of his. Yeah, and uh, as usual, uh, it looks like it's going to be a good one, and then it falls apart. Uh, at the end. Yeah, all the moths end up in his business opportunity and uh, eat away at his opportunities. <laughs> yeah, his opportunity flies away. <laughs> yes, flutters away. That's it. <laughs> Good one. Elaine's creepy new boyfriend, Aaron, he's played by Judd Reinhold. He's a close talker who enjoys spending time with Jerry's parents. So other secondary characters, like I mentioned, uh, Morty and Helen Seinfeld, they're back. They're played by Barney Martin and Liz Sheridan. A very uh, Seinfeld parent-heavy episode, this one, Steve. They, they feature quite prominently in this two-parter. Yeah, I'm one of the only episodes episodes maybe the only episode where they are on the in the same scene i can't remember others maybe there is but i can't recall oh you mean morty and helen yeah the george's parents and um and jerry's oh. parents oh right yes of course both of them yeah you don't see them too often together in, in the same room do you or on the same cruise ship <laughs> like the final scene <laughs> yeah even their storylines being related is very rare you know normally it's an episode with either one of the set of parents not both having their own storyline you know that yeah most of the time they're in their own scenes but their storylines are very, very interconnected. Mm-hmm. And they both converge together and uh, it's all chaos. Yeah. And yes, you, you did mention Frank and Estelle Costanza. They appear in this episode. Newman makes an appearance and some one-off, oh, actually, and also Jack Klompas, I should say, played by Sandy Barron. The one-off secondary characters are Mike Haggerty. He plays Rudy, the clothes salesman, and Doreen Wilson plays Alec, the big brother. Some trivia for the episode, my friend. What have you got? The first one I have is another real-life situation making uh, it into the show. Larry David said that the making out of Schindler's List must have come from him sitting at his temple. I assume that's his Jewish temple. Um, yes. Thinking to himself, what would happen uh, if he reached over and touched his wife's breast right now or something like that? <laughs> Saying that, you know, it's hard for him to pay attention in the temple. I imagine it would be a bit boring from time to time. And that his mind wanders and uh, he sort of explored that thought and uh, I'm, I'm guessing he didn't uh, actually act it out but uh, it was obviously significant enough for him that uh, he remembered it when he was coming up or him or, you know when he was pitching ideas for this episode lovely lovely and, and I got another trivia fact about Larry he actually dubbed the line that uh, Rudy says when he's burning the cabana wear at the very end of part one he utters the words lousy moth breeding crap but it's not actually uh, Mike who plays Rudy that's doing it it's Larry so <laughs> pretty interesting how they dubbed that one yeah, that's really weird. Maybe they decided to add a line post-production and uh, the, sorry, what was the actor's name who played Rudy? Oh, Mike Haggerty. Yeah, maybe he wasn't available, so Jerry just stood in. I don't know, that's really strange. Yeah, it sounds to me like maybe they thought about it later on. Like maybe Mike, maybe they filmed the yeah. scene with Rudy just burning the clothes, but they probably wanted to, you know, try and get an understanding of what he was really thinking. So they probably thought, Larry, just come in and, and do a line. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Lousy mouth throat and crap. Yes, yeah, it seems <laughs> like a, yeah, it seems like a decision made in post-production uh, rather than mm. missed out, you know, in the script. Definitely. The second and final trivia point that I have is that Jerry Seinfeld has mentioned that Shin Schindler's List was chosen uh, as the movie that uh, he makes out with Rachel in because he was aware that Steven Spielberg, being the director of Schindler's List, was a massive fan of the show. Yes, and Steven Spielberg, he got so depressed while filming Schindler's, Schindler's List because obviously it meant a lot to him, especially being part of the Jewish community. And I think he had relatives who were in the, the Holocaust or, or something like that. And uh, yeah, he was so depressed while filming that he would watch tapes of Seinfeld to cheer himself up. Yeah, I can relate to that. Um, about a year ago, I, you know, we did talk about it on the show my father passed away and uh when i was back in brisbane uh dealing with that it was seinfeld that kept my um you know my sister and my mother and i sane every night you know each day would be hard but we'd, we'd finish the day and just watch some seinfeld so i can relate to seinfeld being a a bomb bomb yeah i know i know but it's, it's kind of it's gotten me out of dark times too watching an episode yeah. or two you know when you're feeling down especially in this situation in melbourne <laughs> so sometimes it's nice to throw on an episode or two and uh, yeah you perk up yeah even if even if you don't sort of laugh out loud you know because you've seen the episode so many times you're not surprised it just feels safe it's reliable it's yeah like a, it's like an old friend you're like well this is not going to blow me away because i know exactly what's going to happen but it's just so yeah it's just it's like a warm safe cup of tea absolutely yeah, it's a nice cup of tea nice and warm <laughs> nice bulb <laughs> yes my final trivia point i have steve is morty says that we can't stand them referencing the costanzas and that's a reference to the episode
episode The Library from Season 3, where George's gym teacher calls him Can't Stand you. Yeah, and one of the most uh, quoted lines whenever George is mentioned. It's usually Can't Stand ya. Can't Stand ya, yeah, but then Morty says he can't stand the Costanzas, so <laughs> it's a very, very nice throwback. Yeah, and uh, as we talk about pretty much every week, because there's usually at least one throwback in every episode, that's what Larry and Jerry, you know, amongst many other things, that, that's what they were the masters at, of you know, making even subtle references to previous episodes. Even if they weren't related, just working them into the script just makes it feel so much more cohesive and rich. And uh, yeah, this is just another another example of that. Absolutely. Did you say you had one more trivia fact or was that it? No, the previous one was my last one. Ah, beautiful. All right, let's jump into these characters from the raincoats, eh? Sounds good. Let's talk about Aaron, the close talker. I mean, we have talked about him in the What's the Deal with the Talkers episode. I think we did that one a couple of years ago, uh, yeah. but it's been a while since we've spoken about him. So I think we could probably do like a revised, you know, analysis of him. So he's played by Judge Reinhold, a very fantastic performance, if I don't say so myself. He was actually nominated for a Best Guest Actor in a Comedy Series for this role, an Emmy Award. So uh, yeah, he was um, he was nominated, which was incredible. And I think it was well-deserved that he got the nomination. He's appeared in the films Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Beverly Hills Cop, The Santa Claus, Stripes, and Gremlins. Yeah, no, Aaron is a, um, a fantastic character. I know he's in your top 20, and he's one of the most sort of popular and uh, quoted secondary characters amongst the general Seinfeld fan base, um, you know, for reasons that are obvious when you watch this episode. Absolutely. And yeah, just a terrific performance by Judge. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. With Aaron, I again, uh, Ivan mentioned it just before, we have done a What's the Deal with episode. Those, those are some older episodes we used to do where we focused on one or a couple of more major secondary characters on the show. And we did uh, an episode called What's the Deal with the Talkers where we talked about Aaron. We also talked about the uh, the high talker and the low talker as well. Yeah. And This is Dan. Yeah. I can't remember exactly <laughs> what we said about Aaron, but he is... You described him as creepy, which I would agree with. Um, mm-hmm. But he's he's not creepy in like a malicious way. I don't think he, no, he has no. real will. But he's so nice that, you know, even for, you know, I mean, the core four perceive any sort of kindness as like, why would you do that? Because they're not kind people themselves. But even for the most, even for like a super kind person, I think they would perceive Aaron as just being like creepily kind. And creepily kind, like as if he might have something up his sleeve, even though he doesn't. Yeah. And I don't think he has any uh, ulterior motive at all. I, you know, he genuinely and wholeheartedly wants to uh, impress the Seinfelds and, you know, I'm assuming other people as well uh, off screen. But yeah, it's just, it it would make me very, very uncomfortable. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think I did mention, I I didn't listen to the Talkers episode recently, but I'm pretty sure like I I have a decent memory sometimes with what I've said about some characters. But I think I mentioned that maybe he's got depth perception issues. So maybe he like, he he has to like really go in and, and talk to people or maybe he does it for like validation or maybe he kind of wants to what's the word it's like he's overcompensating yeah overcompensating or he kind of wants validation yeah he seems like he's seeking even though his intention is pure and he seems like a genuinely to the core very nice person i think subconsciously on a very deep level it is motivated by the need to be validated um and you know he just doesn't know the appropriate level of being nice you know it just comes across as like well you need to back off a bit because you're kind of uh, you're in my physical space and you're also just being awkwardly kind one theory that i kind of had i only had it today when i was watching the episode the fact that i mean he's he's very nice to everyone you know he's very pleasant and very affable to almost everyone but he seems to really really be dialed into wanting to help and uh and offer anything he can any favor any help any sort of accommodation to the seinfelds that being morty and helen i'm gonna go out and say that maybe he lost his parents um, or maybe he, you know, had a really, really horrible relationship with his parents. And maybe, you know, you know, and it kind of like adds to that idea that he's seeking validation. Maybe he really, really hones in on Seinfeld's parents because, you know, either his parents weren't around, maybe they died when he was young or maybe he's adopted or, you know, they weren't around for whatever reason. Or maybe if they are around, his relationship is very strained and, you know, he's, he's felt a huge hole in his life. So when he has the opportunity to do something nice for two strangers who are you know nice enough people when you first meet them he goes so hard because he's he's got this desperate sort of emptiness from a lack of parent relationship or just the lack of parents being alive some there's some some sort of missing relationship there with his parents he tries to fill the void i mean if we can yeah. go by that then yeah maybe he you know he, he longs for parents he pines for them and uh, yeah he uh, he wants to try and you know give them a good time and i think as well just going off that as well i think professionally he probably earns a really good coin and i think he's got a lot of contacts because he's able to get them into 
to like the Metropolitan Museum of Art and he's able yeah. to like get them Broadway tickets and all this stuff. I, I think he, he's probably really charismatic and he yeah, probably, yeah. Um, you know, can get what he wants, uh, even though he is pretty, <laughs> he probably goes pretty close to his contacts, you know, nose to nose asking for stuff. Or maybe, you know, some people are too polite to like tell him to, you know, piss off or, you know, move move away. He may just give him stuff just so they're not bothered by him. I was going to say people, you know, people, he's probably um, just given free stuff he's, to some people. Uh, well, you know, just so he'll go away. And he's too nice for them to tell him to piss off or, yeah, you know, move, like, move like back. Elaine yeah, says, like, she almost she doesn't even know why she's sort of creeped out and weirded out by him because she even says, like, he's just being nice. And it's like you can't fault someone really for being too nice. I think it's appropriate. You know, if Elaine or any of the core four were, like, normal people and uh, Aaron was – in their life and he was always up in their face, you know, to the point where Kramer nearly bloody falls and injures himself. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was good. Meet. Yeah, when they it's like, uh, you're Kramer, I've heard about you. Oh, you're Aaron, I've heard about you too. In, implying, <laughs> yeah, 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 Elaine's told, uh, Jerry's told me about you being a close talker. I know who you are. Um, <laughs> just say, you know, we had a, a friend who was a close talker. I think, you know, it would reach a point where one of us would sit down and try and be polite and say, look, you know, we love you, but you kind of get up in our personal space, you know, like you can sort of let people know that, hey, there's something you need to sort of, you know, address, but in a friendly and respectful way. Yeah. So I think, I think, um, the core four aren't able to do that though, because they're not sort of normal people. They don't have that emotional intelligence and they, they're just like, nah, you know, Elaine would be like, yeah. nah, he's a close talker. That's a fault. Dump him. Like they wouldn't go to that effort to try and politely say to him, look, maybe you should make a bit more effort to stay or step back from people. Yeah. They can't be bothered. No, they're just like, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm not going to do that. The only other thing, and we may, it rings a very vague bell kind of related to what you were saying before about um, him having access to, you know, the museum, uh, Metropolitan Museum of Art. He also takes, <laughs> it's initially Elaine, you know, she thinks it's just her and then uh, Morty and Helen pop up. Uh, they go and see My Fair Lady. I think we- Yeah, he can wrangle that, a couple more tickets. Yeah, I think we theorize that maybe he, um, you know, maybe he works in like some sort of artistic role. Um, you know, maybe he's like a culture writer or something like that. Um, ah, yeah, that does sound familiar. Now you mentioned that. I think yeah. you did say something like culture writer or he works for like you know time out magazine or one of those kind of you know broadsheet what, what do you call them broadsheet yeah, culture like magazines culture magazines something like that you yeah. might even work for yeah, a magazine yeah. and just be their cultural editor you know and it's just one mm-hmm. section of a big magazine like you know the new yorker has a massive you know they talk about all sorts of things um and culture is new york culture is one of their sort of cornerstones of their magazine content so you know he could work for the new yorker or something similar and yeah um, yeah and that kind of in a way you know not that you have to be artistic to go to paris but uh, he speaks very highly of paris he when um when he first meets morty and helen they say yeah we're going to paris and he's like i love paris i was there last year and you know paris is known as a city you know rich in art culture and um you know it, it's a city and the architecture it's a city loved by people who would love the same things as, uh, you know, we suppose Aaron would being a culture writer or some sort of cultural participant. They're both cosmopolitan cities. So yeah. anyone, basically the whole vibe of New York, you can kind of get in Paris anyway with a few different touches. Yeah, for sure. And um, he seems to know a bit about Monet as well. I can't remember exactly what he says. Um, he <laughs> the impressionist. About, yeah, impressionist art. So he, you know, he doesn't just know people who work in uh, museums of art, but he knows about art itself, which I think, you know, if we're theorizing that he is some sort of culture writer or something like that, um, um, would make sense because that would be, you know, his wheelhouse. That would be what he's writing about every day. And I love how Morty tries to figure out Monet. Yeah, Morty's very fixated by Monet and Impressionist paintings. And yeah. I love how he's trying to figure it out. It's good. Yeah, it's um his reaction to Monet is like a typical layman. Like, I like the art, but I don't really understand the art, which I think is how most people feel. Like, you go to an art gallery and you're like, well, I can see the talent and it's very mm. visually striking, but I don't really understand, like, the artistic message. Or, you know, sometimes you read those little, like, plaques behind... Uh, beside a painting and it will talk about the artist's intentions and it will be so sort of like highfalutin and almost pretentious mm. you're like oh, i don't know it just looks cool whatever <laughs> like, like <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, looks I, right. I feel like morty embodies that just typical like well i like art but i don't really understand it i just like the look yeah. of it he embodies that layman's understanding very very well um, i think he's so enthralled by aaron and probably even though yeah. aaron speaks close to them i think he's probably enthralled by his education and knowledge of art so maybe morty's kind of intrigued yeah i think he's vibing a bit off alan uh off aaron i you know i imagine that yeah um, you know, when Aaron took them to the museum, he probably gave them a guided tour and, you know, went into detail about all the different artists. And, you know, Morty can be pretty interested in things that he isn't normally interested in. Like, he's a pretty keen guy. Like, he likes knowing stuff and he can be pretty engaged. So, yeah, I can imagine him responding positively to Aaron, you know, talking about something that he had no idea about prior to meeting him. Yeah, very true. And the final thing I wanted to mention about Aaron, I think, and I think you mentioned before that he, um, you know, he earns good money or that he's well-connected and well-resourced. And I think 
think that is demonstrated by the fact that he holds up his watch. And I know nothing about luxury watches. You know, I could look at a watch and be like, yeah, it looks expensive, but I have no idea. <laughs> but uh, he holds up his watch and he's like, this watch could have paid for their whole trip. And I mean, in the 90s, a round trip to Paris, you know, and I'm assuming accommodation, meals, you know, for a week or two weeks would have been what? Thousands. Three, four, five grand. Probably um, more. You know, air travel, you know, even from New York to Paris, which is only about six hours, air travel in the 90s was not cheap. And I don't imagine Morty and Helen, you know, they seem comfortably well off. I don't think they'd be doing it on the cheap. So if we just say five grand, that's a mm-hmm. pretty expensive watch. So I imagine he's either, even if he's not wealthy, maybe he just loves spending money on nice things, you know, which again relates to him appreciating the finer things in life. Or maybe again, yeah, culturally speaking, or maybe again, he's just so good with the gift of the gab. He can just get contacts and he can get watches for cheaper than everyone else. True. He can get $5,000 watches maybe for a couple of grand and then he can, you know, sell yeah. it off for the full price. <laughs> True. Yeah. He could, I mean, he could, you know, knowing knowing him and uh, having the network he does, I wouldn't be surprised if he has, you know, somewhat like a he knows a watch importer who can get them at wholesale cost or something and they, he got one, you know, on the side as opposed to full retail price. Maybe he's, um, maybe it's sleight of hand. Maybe he talks really close to people so they're so like distracted by him so he steals the watch so oh he's, no he's no he's not no, like that I'm, i don't I'm think no, no no he'd be terrible in these times wouldn't he you know you'd want to throw a mask on him oh, otherwise yeah. he'd just come up to you and just you know breathe all his germs on you it'd be oh, disgusting be, he'd be he'd be one of those super spreaders if be, he had covid yeah there'd be a covid 19 policy for society and then there'd be a separate covid 19 policy just for him <laughs> just for him i've seen the memes about covid on on seinfeldisms i've seen a lot of aaron the close talker memes about covid yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like true. the guy who you don't want to be with him during COVID and stuff. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. you don't want to be with him during normal times. So, uh, yeah, during a pandemic, especially not. Imagine being like Jerry or one of the other actors, you know, with Judge really close to you. Like Jerry and, and Judge, you know, they're so close. They're almost touching noses. Imagine how Jerry felt doing that. <laughs> God, yeah, yeah. Being a couple of millimetres from his face, a couple of centimetres would have been crazy. I'm surprised actually, Jerry, you know, he's well known for being quite overly hygienic and very, very neat. I'm surprised that even just one line of his wasn't, you know, he's too close and I... You know, it's sort of, it not only crosses my personal space, but it is unhygienic. You know, I'm surprised he didn't even just mention it once, but. I'm sure that was probably like the 40th take. You know, after 39 takes, Jerry's like, all right, fine, yeah. <laughs> I'll do it. And then they cut it and then they edit the rest of the scene in. <laughs> Wouldn't surprise yeah. me. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't have anything else about Aaron, do you? No, but if you want to know, I mean, if there's anything that we've missed this week, you can go back to our What's the Deal with the Talkers episode. And I think we go more in depth about him. So uh, any things we missed out on, go back and listen to that yeah. one. I think uh, I think we've covered him pretty well, though. Yes, let's talk about Rudy, the uh, clothes salesman. He's played by Mike Haggerty. He's known for the films Overboard and Wayne's World, Wayne's World, Party Time. Excellent. Nice. Yeah, so Rudy, I I think that's probably like, would you say that's a thrift store or uh, like a I'd secondhand say, clothes store? What would you say that is? I'd that say it's, it's a secondhand clothes store, but I think it's a tiny bit more selective and um, pricier than your normal thrift store. I think most thrift stores aren't as fussy or uh, selective about their stock, whereas Rudy seems to be going for a specific specific vibe or fashion type if you um, have a vintage little, yeah vintage clothes so I think it's like well we only take secondhand clothes but you know it's got to be of a certain quality or brand or style I don't think it's just like yeah anything secondhand I think he would be quite picky about what he does and doesn't take he yeah, burns so all like, the rejects and takes all the good stuff the, the things that we know he definitely doesn't take is uh, moth ridden cabana crap yeah that's one thing definitely or yeah. just any crap in general I reckon Rudy it's probably not the first time he's burnt clothes I reckon he goes out the back at night and he just burns shit that he doesn't yeah. want yeah, yeah. I, I kind of get this sense that he's a tiny bit dodgy you know like he's you know he's a, he's a legitimate businessman he's running a legitimate business yes and I imagine it would be hard running a sort of a vintage clothing shop that only stocks certain sort of vintage clothes. Um, even in a fashion forward and um, eclectic city like New York, I imagine that wouldn't be easy and it would be a bit of a risk. But I imagine he's a bit... I wouldn't say he's like a total shifty dude, but I imagine he just sort of walks that line between being totally legitimate and just being a tiny bit dodgy from time to time. Like, you know, burning clothes out the back instead of disposing them responsibly. Or, you know, the fact that he doesn't offer George any refund on, even though George gave him moth-ridden clothes, George gives him his money back, but uh, he doesn't mm. offer anything in return. He's just like, yeah, I burnt them. Give me my money. He's just- Yeah, no, I, I st- no store credit, no no replacement clothes, nothing. Yeah, like there's just no like, no sort of reciprocation there. He's just a bit, maybe a bit selfish and on occasion a bit dodgy yeah I, I don't really like yeah i think some of his business practices are very questionable <laughs> as yeah. well i don't think he takes shit from anyone really like I, he can probably spot you know people that he can 
push over like George and he yep. could probably just use him to their advantage. Yeah. And look, he probably cops a lot of, um, you know, people trying to grift him. So he probably has to be cynical and, uh, you know, assess people pretty quickly because I imagine a lot of people would try and come in and hock, you know, which, you know, clothes that, you know, aren't actually like valuable vintage clothes and they're just like old shitty clothes, but he would be, you know, people would try and convince him, no, no, you know, these are actually worth some money. So I think, I think mm. it makes sense for him to be quite prudent in that way. But yeah, I think it does spill over a bit to like, well, I'm not just prudent for myself, but I am. I look out for myself more than my customers or my, you know, the people I'm buying off uh, when it yeah, when it's in, like George. And he's into like styles and trends and stuff too. Like he even says like as Kramer tries to convince him to buy the executive beltless trench coats that Morty used to make. And then after all that crap that he went, that everyone went through in the episode where he decides not to buy them. Do you think maybe he's another guy who's, you know, charmed by Kramer and maybe he just wanted to buy stuff, you know, because Kramer kind of persuaded him to? Uh, I don't think it's Kramer. I think the executives sold themselves because uh, when Kramer says, you know, he brings up the executive and you see Rudy's like, yeah, they don't make those anymore. Like he- Oh, he right. Does, yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. Seem, yes. He does seem to hold the executive in high esteem. And when um, Kramer says, well, what would you say if I had three boxes coming in from Florida? He's like, I'd be very interested. So I think- Ah, yeah, 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 right. Like it, regardless of who came in and, and offered the executives, I think he'd be very interested, but obviously uh, not so interested, you know, after they're filled with moths. No, no. Because that basically, devalues the whole thing the whole shipment <laughs> it's just yeah, all I gone mean, Rudy actually says specifically what moths do you know they lay eggs and then they just they eat everything like he elaborates they go everywhere them. yeah you know not that he needs to but uh yeah, he, he makes his point very clear as to why moths are bad news for uh, clothes vendors like him. Mm, I can imagine he has lots of moth balls stacked away in the storage room or something. And I think to him, moths are just uh, just one other thing to, uh, you know, to think about when he's selling clothes. And when he sees them, he's just like, no, <laughs> don't want anything to do with them. I would imagine as well, like he, uh, you know, he, I think the moths being in um, Frank Costanza's cabana wear or cruise wear was like the final straw when he says, no, I'm not buying anything off the street. I kind of got this impression that maybe you know before George came in to offer Frank's clothes you know maybe in the preceding months you know he had like a series of people coming in and moths being a problem or similar problems occurring and that was just he's like no more mm-hmm. I've taken I've taken three chances and or, or you know however many chances and you know there's been problems so I'm just not going to buy off the street anymore I'm only going to buy off like vintage clothes suppliers or, or suppliers yeah or whatever. Yeah. yeah I don't think George's moths was the only incident uh, where he you know he bought something and they turned out to be not a good buy yeah he's gone through lots of experiences and uh, yeah he's yeah. just going to stick with his suppliers now <laughs> yeah <'cause laughs> trying up the quality yeah I think if it was just George who sold him a box of Mothrood and Cabana crap. I don't think that that would be enough of an experience to make him decide to not buy executives because he was so keen on the executives. But the fact that he was just like, he refused the executives even when they were there and he'd made a deal. I think that sort of decision when he was so keen on them to not, the, the decision not to buy them would have been because of more than just one incident with George. Like that's, that mm. was a pretty serious backing out of him because he was so, so keen for them. But he'd, he'd experienced enough bad luck that he was like, I'm not even going to take these executives. Even though they're a moneymaker for him, he's thinking yeah, that, like not he, doing it. He, yeah, he's just like the the juice is just not worth the squeeze. Even though he knows that the executives would bring him a lot of money and they're rare, you know, it's a it's a good buy. But he's been burned so many times, or he's burned clothes so many times. Uh, yeah, yes. before George, he's like the ex- even these executives aren't worth it. Yeah. So what do you think happened? Because that is his store. It's called Rudy's. Mm-hmm. Do you think maybe he just shut up shop and did something else, or he's just uh, no, you know trudging along? He doesn't seem to be struggling. He seems pretty comfortable. And no, I mean, do you, I mean, do, do you think he maybe like later on, like maybe the executive oh. situation tipped him over the edge and then he's like you know fuck this I'm gonna do something else and then you no, just shut the shop no I think he just made a policy that I'm just he even says like I'm not gonna buy clothes off off the street, off the street anymore, anymore people off the street yeah I think he just would have you know relied more on his his like more professional vendors who he trusts so um, it didn't shake him up too much no <laughs> and look if yeah. he did if he did go back to buying clothes off the street off people off the street I think he would have a much more thorough process to make sure you know that the clothes were quality before he bought he wouldn't just be like yeah here's some cash for a box of clothes he would inspect them and you know maybe test them for pests or whatever. I think it would be a lot more thorough if he did go back to buying clothes off the street. And if anything, it probably made his business better. You know, he probably got more customers, more, you know, 90s hipster doofuses like Kramer coming in to buy clothes. Yeah. I mean, if he opened up in like 2008 in Brooklyn, he'd be rolling in it. If he opened up in 2015 in Melbourne, he'd be killing uh, it too. Yeah. <laughs> Pre-COVID. Oh man, yeah. pre-lockdown. He'd be loving life. He yeah. set it up in the middle of Smith Street in Fitzroy and he'd make millions. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> He'd be doing very well. I um, I don't have <laughs> 
anything else about Rudy, but I do really like Rudy. Um, as you know, and as some of our listeners may know, I do love a sort of grumpy, surly, kind of dodgy store owner, you know, uh, the record store owner from the old man, you know, and Rudy, Rudy's not as like belligerent. He's a bit more friendly and a bit more like professional than the record store owner, but he kind of does mm. have that like grumpy, tiny bit of an asshole, tiny bit of a, you know, just like just a tiny bit of a jerk. He's very like short um, in, in how he talks to people, very direct, and he's kind of a bit grumpy and I do. I love any character like that, so I really, really like Rudy. Yeah, no, he wasn't too bad. And um, he has appeared, Mike Haggerty, in Kerber Enthusiasm. He was in Amco, the uh, season one episode that we did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he plays the mechanic. <laughs> so, yeah, I've seen him in a few things. So, uh, you know, he, he wasn't too bad. Yeah, no, I uh, have a, a lot of room for Rudy in my heart. <laughs> you do. Anyway, should we talk about Alec, the big brother? Sounds good. All right, he was played by Dorian Wilson. He's known for the Parkers and Dream On. And Joey, I mean, I guess we can talk a little bit about him. Uh, he was played by Jason Maneri, and this is his best-known role. He has three other acting credits in movies I've never heard of in my life so it's not even worth mentioning the big brother and little brother program that was a thing that I feel that was quite prominent in like the 80s and 90s you know especially with lots more latchkey children and uh, you know broken homes more divorces you know that have occurred in the decades prior yeah I feel like the, the little brother big brother brother thing was kind of like a, a revolution at the time yeah it seemed to it seemed to be a um, a natural response to the increased divorce rates um, and single parents yes. that have been the 70s and 80s and a lot of that yes. you know was as a an unintended consequence of uh you know women becoming more involved in the in the workplace and that's not to disparage women i think it's a wonderful thing but uh you know there's always unintended consequences with any sort of major social change and uh one of those was well less mothers at home looking after kids more kids being the uh you know, kids of divorce. And yeah, and I think that just naturally led to a rise in the need and the popularity for Big Brother. Yeah, and not the one that's on TV and no, tells no, no, no. you to... I should yeah. say, I should say <laughs> not that kind of Big Brother. Big Brother program, not, not, um, not a, you know, government oversight or the crappy reality show. Brother no. Program. You know, nice men look after young men to, to be a father. The good Big Brother, yeah. And Alec definitely, he fits that mould really well. I think it's a good job for him. He's really caring. And even with George, like he, he probably doesn't know George's, you know, attitude. <laughs> he doesn't know probably doesn't know George in full how he operates but no he's pretty uh, pretty cool to George and very calm and reassuring and yeah he's just a really nice guy when they speak yeah I think he's a genuinely nice person you know to his very core I wouldn't be maybe he you know maybe maybe he wasn't a little brother but maybe he experienced something that you know Joey's going through like a, a lack of a parental figure or maybe was a latchkey kid so his you know his passion to being a big brother and trying to encourage George and assuming others as well to help out comes from a place of experience. It seems to be, mm. you know, it seems to be like he's lived through something similar or maybe he did have a big brother or some, you know, whatever existed when he was a kid. Oh, so you think he was a little brother? Or maybe not a little brother specifically, but maybe his experience as a kid was similar to what little brothers, you know, are going through. Maybe he lacked, you know, a, a stable family environment. Maybe he, you know, lost his dad at a young age. Like some something happened, I think, in his childhood. Mm. Um, yep. where, you know, as an adult, he's like, well, I want to give kids what I missed out on, you know, whether that's an unstable family environment or you know, a, a parent who left or whatever it was. Yeah, it might not have been a little brother specifically, but something that something that's related to a, a childhood without like a stable family environment. Yeah. And I love how Joey, he's like a brat of a kid. Yeah. <laughs> you know how, how like Alec is probably one of those people who doesn't see the bad side of Joey. Whereas yeah. George, you know, he's not really good with kids normally, George, but George, you know, he sees like the bad side of Joey. And then to Alec, it's, you know, he can't see it. He's just like, oh no, Joey's a good boy. You know, he's never yeah. caused me trouble. And I think Alec seems to be so nice. And I imagine that he would have such a big heart that even if uh, Joey was as much of a little turd to him as he is to George that it wouldn't push Alec away he would just be more devoted he's like I've got to break through to this kid like he's 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 acting out because he's unhappy or, or upset about his parents or his family like I think it would actually make him more devoted to mm, yeah. to help this kid out you know because he, he's he would see you know George just sees Joey's behavior as like oh this kid's just a little turd fuck him but <laughs> Alec yeah. I think because he views it from an empathetic situation as well as just having a big heart I think he would see it as more of a cry for help yeah absolutely and and like you mentioned, he was probably, he had a broken home or something happened to his dad or, you know, yeah. whatever. And he's had a poor childhood. Maybe he doesn't want to see Joey growing up the same as him. So he tries yeah. to influence him. And then Joey has enough respect. I think Joey probably has enough respect for Alec not to really tip him over the edge or maybe they did have some problems in the past. 
past, you know, like sometimes, you know, when a kid meets someone for the first time, they're a bit of a brat, but then, you know, Alec kind of, he has that benevolent authority over Joey and then Joey eventually like respects him or learns to respect him. And then, uh, yeah, to m- maybe it's that situation. So, you know, to Joey, he respects Alec so much that he's not a turd around him, but uh, he doesn't like George and uh, he, you know, he treats him like shit. Yeah. I, I imagine that Joey treats any new potential father figure with the disdain that he does, uh, George, but, you know, most of them are probably like, you know what, I can't deal with this kid. This is not what I signed up for. And just, you know, the big brothers are like, this is too much and, and leave him. But I think Alec, like I said, he's so devoted and the more Joey would push away, the more Alec would actually, you know, that would have the counter effect of what Joey wants and actually make him more committed. And I think Joey would eventually see that. And Joey, Alec is probably the only like father figure or grown man in his life that's actually stuck around when things got hard, you know? So I think- Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah, I think Alec realized that Joey needed to, to stop him acting out, he needed to uh, develop some trust. And the only way he's going to be trusting of me is if I stick through this, regardless of how much he's a little turd. You know, I need to be there and just and not let him down. And he eventually broke through. And yeah, he's got that. Joey eventually saw that. And um, he he doesn't treat Alec the same way as uh, George. But I think he did in the start. But, you know, Alex, it didn't push Alec away. No, no, no. So yeah, because originally I theorized that maybe Alec doesn't see Joey's tendencies. But yeah, I think this theory is probably better. So he, he saw Joey's tendencies. And then Joey, you know, through all the bonding that they've done. Uh, yeah, Joey has complete respect for him. Yeah. Alec's really gone through the hard yards with him. Yeah. Alec just needed to, to build a bridge of trust. And, uh, you know, sometimes that just requires consistency. You know, I'm here regardless of who you are or how you act. I'm, I'm going to be here. I'm not going to let you down. Yeah. The one thing that was a bit like maybe, you know, like we said, Alex seemed, Alex seems like a very, very nice man, very devoted man, very passionate man, like very genuine. But uh, mm. I think he realizes that he can ask kids to almost guilt potential big brothers, not in like a super manipulative way, but just to sort of like play it up a bit because uh, when Alec first introduces Joey to George, Joey just sort of goes into this autopilot. Yeah, that spiel. Like, Would you like yeah, to that's your right. brother today? And then Alec goes, okay, that's enough, Joey. Like he, he's almost like, okay, you don't need to, you don't need to run the script. Like, you know, pretend, pretend <laughs> no. you know, like this is not one of those situations where you have to run like the guilt script. Um, so I think, <laughs> yes. yeah, I don't think Alec is like manipulative or trying to like guilt trip big brothers into being big brothers but I think he realizes that if he has like if he gets Joey or any of his other kids to like say certain words it helps the the potential big brothers like sort of get over the line or maybe Joey's like the poster child for the little brother big brother program maybe he does mm. TV commercials as well and maybe that's just like the line he's got to say and then he's kind of yeah like you said he's kind of conditioned you know very subtly by Alec um, yeah. but he's con- he's conditioned to kind of say it and he probably thinks he's doing like a commercial or a PSA or something yeah <laughs> I love how Jerry says to George would you like to Pass the ketchup. Yeah, <laughs> in that yeah. tone. Yeah, no, it's uh, it, it's pretty funny. I, I do like Alec. Um, yeah, he's he just seems like a genuine to the core, nice, nice man who's you know just trying to make the world a bit better for a bunch of kids who you know might have had a bit of a rougher start in life. And he's absolutely stoked when uh, he finds out that George uh, you know might be able to go to Paris to drop Joey off to his dad. Yeah, it's sort of you don't ex- like you know obviously I've seen this episode, but uh, I imagine if someone watched this episode for the first time when George is like you know oh I've got to go to Paris. It's such a good business opportunity as a viewer would be like oh well george like george is out like he's 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 free but then alec is like well this is great news george like it just so happens you'd be like oh man yeah <laughs> yeah he'd be loving it yeah i do like joey well I, you know he's a little turd but i like his um kind of like a signature move where he takes something and just sticks it to something else he um in the airport as they're leaving for uh, new york to go to paris takes a piece of gum and just sticks it to the wall and when they're to in the paris, pillar, yeah. it's like it's almost like a post-it note or like a piece of paper or something and he sticks it to one of george's uh, his glasses. It's like his. It's like yeah, his that's right. little turd movie. Like takes something and sticks it to something else. George is trying to flirt with that French woman at the cafe, and then, and then Joey just you know cough blocks him and does that. Yeah, yeah. He's just like, no, nah, not on my watch. <laughs> not on my watch, mate. <laughs> so how do you think George and Joey went? Because George seemed pretty relaxed in, in uh, Paris. Do you think maybe you know, George tracked down Joey's dad, and uh, maybe I Joey's would... living with his dad, or maybe just a visit and they came back? What do you think? Well, yeah. Look, anything other than George tracking down uh, Joey, Joey's dad to like get him off his um you know out of his hair straight away like if i think of any other scenario other than that it's pretty dark i don't think george is so scummy that he would like abandon a kid or just like leave him at an orphanage or something i think fair enough so they just came back they came back after oh no no i think george 
found the father, but yeah, how he went about it or, you know, how long it took him, I don't know. But uh, I can't imagine any other scenario where George would come back without Joey and Joey's with his father. Fair yeah. enough. Yeah. Because who knows what, who knows what like, like. You've abandoned a, a kid in a strange city. That's, that's pretty, that's pretty fucking grim. Because who knows what the father's like too. It could be abusive, yeah. you know, maybe George had to supervise, you know, the visits. <laughs> I, think, I think George would back out of it. If he realized that the father was no good, I think he'd be able to be like, uh, it's not my problem. He'd make up Probably. So he has some kind of, oh, maybe he uses pathological lying on the dad <laughs> to oh, try and so get out of situations. Yeah. yeah. And then the dad was gullible enough to fall for it. And yeah. then they fled to the next the next flight back to New York. They jumped on it. <laughs> yeah, he nearly kills a bubble boy over a misprint on a card and he knows he's wrong. He, he doesn't yes. set out to kill him, but he's so like irresponsible and he escalates a moment so much that it potentially kills the bubble boy you know and and the bubble boy's life is a lot harder than joey's even though joey's life isn't sunshine and it's not rosy yeah yeah so if he's willing to do that over a misprint on a card imagine what uh what lengths he would go to 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 shirk joey off to his father or whoever even if his father was a brick i don't think he would of course i think that would make him go you know what you're coming with me i think he would be like yeah whatever fair enough <laughs> okay yeah so george and joey i'll say that they came back to new york and uh joey was reunited with alec uh yeah i would say that at some point a nice happy ending at some point yeah. yes and then george had a nice time in paris on the chartered uh, chartered tour <laughs> i like it when um joe goes i'm paying for these tickets and george goes oh, i'll get lunch <laughs> that'll pay for it <laughs> of, a, of a fully uh, paid trip to paris that yeah I'll that'll do lunch. it lunch no that'll do it <laughs> love it and do you have any other notes on alec or joey uh, no, that was it. All right. We'll talk about Mr. Goldstein, I think our final secondary character, unless you want to touch on some other characters. Uh, no, look, this episode has gone on a bit longer than normal. If uh, if it was a bit shorter episode at the start, I would maybe spend a bit of time talking about Frank and Estelle. We've talked about them at length. They've got their own episode way back when episode 10 was to deal with the Seinfeld parents. Uh, and we've talked about them, you know, ad nauseum throughout the series as they've come up. And nothing really happens. And Newman as well. And Newman. Yeah. And Morty and Helen as well. So nothing really happens in this episode for any of those characters that we haven't either touched on before or is sort of new territory um you know they're they're pretty locked in characters by this point and they do everything that you would expect them to do so not worth touching on in this episode but yeah let's uh let's finish with uh mr goldstein yes and speaking of those characters steve we do have an episode also on rachel goldstein like a special yeah. what's the deal with her so yeah we won't talk about her today but you can go back and listen to those um but anyway yes mr goldstein our final character rachel's father played by stephen perlman he's known for die hard with a vengeance and the horse whisperer uh, he passed away in 1990 in New York. He was aged 63. So uh, I think he's a very devout Jew. I guess probably orthodox, very traditional. And uh, I love how there's the dynamic where Jerry and Rachel are like teenage kids, you know, yeah. trying to find a place to make out. It was, you know, when we were teenagers, I'm sure, you know, you've probably gone through the same thing. But uh, for me, it was hard to, uh, you know, try and have relations with uh, girlfriends when we were teenagers. We didn't have our own homes or anything. And, uh, you know, depending on our parents, what happened. But uh, yeah, I can kind of feel Jerry. It kind of took me back to my teenage years. Yeah, the parents of um you know teenage dalliances were that you know the parents of those those uh those women were always obstacles to try and get around or deceive mm. so yeah i can definitely relate to that uh and i can i can also relate to not really watching a movie and just spending the whole time making out i think that's a pretty common teen experience as well oh yeah um, <laughs> many times to me yes i can't relate to a vindictive neighbor who dobs on me but uh yeah not not <laughs> seeing a movie and pretending to have to see it, that you have seen it like how'd you like the movie oh yeah yeah it was great even it was though okay uh, yes yeah you, you spent the whole time looking at someone's face rather than uh, the movie. Yeah, you're making out, yes. Yeah, no, I, I really like Mr. Goldstein. I agree that he's a very conservative, traditional Jewish man. He's very serious. I think he takes life very seriously. Um, you know, he's a big fan of, uh, even though, you know, they're playing up the whole teenage struggle for spaces to be intimate in private um, kind of uh, trope. I think I, I would imagine, you know, even as an adult, Rachel, especially while living under his roof, would be expected to follow the same rules that she probably had to follow when she was a teenager. Even though she's an adult and she can make out with whoever she wants, while she's under his roof, I imagine that he would still go, it doesn't matter whether you're a teenager or an adult, the rules are still the same. They're still the same under, under our household, under our roof, yeah. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that Mr. Goldstein might have had relatives who were in the Holocaust, because obviously Schindler's List is, you know, about the Holocaust and you know, the unfortunate events that happened. I'm going to say it really hit him personally. I think he probably had a family member, an aunt, uncle, mum, dad, yeah, who was who was a victim or a prisoner of war. I think they were probably involved 
involved and that's probably you know jerry you know finding out that jerry and his own daughter made out during schindler's list that's probably you know cut him even deeper than it should yeah no you're right actually because obviously it bothers newman um it makes him very angry it bothers morty and helen but uh i don't think they take it personally they just see it as like inappropriate behavior but uh yeah i, I think mr goldstein uh felt it more than the others in that he can directly relate to he found it not only disrespectful as just like a social faux pas but also as like i'm taking this personally yeah because of my personal uh, connection to the uh the holocaust yeah I, i'm gonna go out on, on a limb like i said and uh, and say that yeah no good take I, I didn't think of that but i think that's uh pretty spot on and he probably gave rachel a huge yelling at you know when jerry left and you know remember your family you know they were involved and <laughs> You know, yeah, this yeah, happened to them. How could you be so insensitive about your ancestors? And Rachel's like, I'm sorry. Yeah, I imagine Rachel would have had to uh, undergo a grilling from Mr. Goldstein. And that's why, because I think Rachel turns up, I think she's she's in the Hamptons next. So, yes. um, you know, she's in the Hamptons and then she's in the opposite uh, when Jerry and Rachel break up. So probably I think the Schindler's List situation was probably the tipping point for the relationship. Yeah. Is the Hamptons before this episode or after this episode? It's after. Yeah. Sure. This yeah. No, this is episode 18 and 19, I think. Hamptons was like 22, 23. And then you got the opposite, which is the finale. So yeah, she turns up two more times. But I think the Schindler's List thing probably affected their relationship. Yep. It was the first step to to the end, I think. Yeah, the beginning of the end. She seemed to really like Jerry, though. Oh, yeah. We we have talked about uh, her during the opposite and also the Hamptons. Um, And she doesn't really have a lot of important sort of scenes in this episode. But I think it's worth mentioning that she seems to really like Jerry. The fact that she's willing to put up with not being able to sleep with him. Because, you know, when you first meet someone and you're into them, that's when you want to, like, make the most of it. And, you you, know, you, you want to rub skin, don't you? Yeah. So the fact that she's willing to forego any sort of, you know, even kissing, any any physical contact for three weeks at a, at a new relationship to me says that she really, she's, you know, she's she wouldn't normally do that unless she really liked the dude. So I think, yeah. yeah she really um she really likes Jerry she's and and you know even when potential sex is on the cards it's interrupted by the parents and she's still not sort of like scared off so no. you know, which would add to the frustration yeah so I, I think she really really likes Jerry I think uh, uh, another reason is probably because Jerry's Jewish as well so maybe because you know Mr Goldstein's so traditional and I'm guessing Mrs Goldstein off screen um they probably would rather like a Jewish guy um you know for Rachel to elope with so maybe you know Rachel says oh I really like Jerry and Jerry's Jewish so I'm gonna like hang on to him and try and do as many concessions as I can so we can get together yeah no that's a good point too yeah and it was interesting how rachel like she doesn't actually have any idiosyncrasies or any problems like that jerry might have with her like she was a completely cool chick you know but the only problem was uh they weren't able to get together because of the parents Yeah, and that wasn't really a quirk. That was just circumstantial. Circumstantial, and especially with Morty and Helen, you know, he's he's saying, all right, Rachel, come on over. And then, you know, they're starting to make out and then Morty and Helen and Aaron come back <laughs> and they're yeah. like, shit. <laughs> I guess you can say really the only quirk, and it's not even really a quirk, but the only like sort of, the only uh, aspect to her life or personality that Jerry may hold against her is the fact that she still lives at home and is under the thumb of her father. Yeah, like, that's the only thing. Yeah, but that's not even like, you know, that's not like a physical thing or a personality thing. That's just, well, she has to move home because of whatever happened in her life. Yeah, but yeah, you're right. She's um she's pretty pretty uh quirkless. But uh yeah, her father is sort of the quirk, the proxy quirk. Yeah, he's the obstacle. Yeah, it's not necessarily anything that Rachel does. It's no. rather Rachel's father. Yeah. No, no, exactly. All right, that is all the secondary characters for this week's episode, The Raincoats. We're going to take a quick break and when we come back, we will find out where the raincoats sit in the uh, order of episodes we've reviewed so far and whether any of the secondary characters appear in our top 20. Lousy math rooting crap. This is Aaron. Hello, Aaron. Hello, Hello, Aaron. So how long are you folks in town? (laughs) Three more days. Three more days and then we're off to Paris. We're going with the select charter group. I love France. I was just there last year. In fact, you know, I still have an envelope full of French francs. I'll give them to you. We can't take money. Oh, no. It's a gift. All right, buddy, out of 147 episodes, where does this two-parter sit in your episodes that we've reviewed so far? This episode sits at number seven. I absolutely... Seven? Ooh. I this episode. Um, All right. Yeah, normally two-parters for Seinfeld do tend to... I like them all. I like The Trip, like The Boyfriend, um, even the unofficial two-parters like The Virgin and The Contest. But The Trip and The Boyfriend, uh, being similar to this episode where it just feels like one episode just cut down the middle, they do drag on a bit. It feels like I'm watching a longer episode, but this one, I didn't feel that at all. I love it. It's got, you know, it's got uh, Rudy, who's a fantastic character. It's got my favorite of all time, Tide, Jack Klompus. Love how the storylines into, into twing, uh, intertwine, intertwingle. That's not a word. <laughs> intertwingle, yeah. <laughs> 
intertwingle and intertwine. That's a new word, intertwingle. Yeah, I, I love the uh, the George storyline. I like the fact that Rachel isn't a girlfriend because normally when uh, there's a Jerry episode girlfriend, you know, a major part of the storyline is her quirk or is Jerry trying to avoid seeing her for whatever reason. The fact that the a circumstance out of control rather than the woman herself was the problem that he was trying to overcome was just a slightly different writing choice, which I really appreciated. Aaron, the close talker, of course, fantastic. Yeah, I just loved it all. I can't really fault it. I absolutely adore this episode. What about you? <laughs> Lovely. Well, that was a huge surprise, man. I didn't expect it to be that high. Uh, unfortunately for me, not as high as that, a number 63. Um, yeah, it was one of the better two-part episodes, but uh, yeah, and I really liked uh, really liked Judge Reinhold as Aaron, the close talker. He's one of my faves. And uh, yeah, I liked Rudy and the other secondaries as well, but uh, I felt like maybe in parts it did drag a little bit and they probably could have elaborated on a few things but yeah i mean overall yeah it was fun i mean frank and estelle are in and they you know they're you know they think that morty and helen are trying to avoid them you know you know too busy and then morty and helen are actually avoiding them and you know we find out in the episode that they don't like the costanzas this is the episode we find out we don't care for the costanzas yeah um but yeah i mean it was good but not memorable too much for me okay no fair enough what about Hmm. uh, any of the secondary characters well aaron the close talker he was already in my top 20 and when we did the talkers episode at the time uh he's currently at number 11 so he stays there what about you uh yeah rudy so he enters the top 10 uh, sorry top 20 Sweet. he comes in at number 11 probably oh, 11 too yeah i i don't have my top 10 characters i should really get that out it's somewhere um i haven't gone over them in shit probably more than a year but uh mm, basically you should yeah it's uh it's rudy jack clompus alton bennis and uh and a few others same with top 10 episodes i will actually do that between now and next week when we record and um and go through them but yeah no i i loved rudy he's uh he's right up there with uh you know the, the typical character that i tend to gravitate towards yes and you you usually like jaded uh salesmen or business people yeah there's something, something <laughs> about them. They just don't give a shit i'm just like yeah and curmudgeon old dudes yeah, they're assholes. They're, they're your main two. They're yeah. assholes, but they don't care that they're assholes. They've got no like no qualms. They're like, yeah, I'm just a grumpy old bugger. I don't care. And if you don't like that, I'm you too, sort of thing. Like, <laughs> yeah. in, a, in a strange way, I kind of respect that. Like, just I don't care. Like, yep. I don't like you, but I like the fact that you don't care that I don't like you. There's there's something to respect there. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Very good. But anyway, mate, that was another episode of But I Don't Want to Be a Secondary Character. Thank you so much for listening. We do appreciate it. Uh, we appreciate your emails, your texts, your tweets, your posts, you know, whatever you do to contact us. We do read each one and we appreciate it a lot. And next week, Stephen, we are doing a classic season four episode, my friend. They're real and spectacular. We're doing the implant. Nice. I'm surprised we haven't actually done this episode, but uh, yeah, a classic. Some of the uh, some of the most classic lines, I'd say. The most yes. Lines. And with Sidra, a very uh, sultry character, which I'm sure we'll have a lot to say about her. Yes. Her, not her, not her assets, her. No, no, her as a person, yes. And, and Terry Hatcher, the actor as well, who, who plays her. That's Lots right. of info about her. Yes. That's right. If you want to email us, you can, biblebasspodcast.gmail.com. We're on all forms of social media. You'll find those details in the show notes. Uh, you can support us by leaving a review. You can listen to all of our previous episodes on your podcast app of choice. And you can support us financially as well. Yes, one-off payments on PayPal. And you can also sign up to Patreon for a couple of US dollars a month. And you get access to this episode earlier than everyone else, as well as our back catalogue of bonus episodes and our bonus podcast series, Curbcast and Season 11. And finally, we do have the Biggest Seinfeld group on Facebook, Seinfeldisms. We're over 100,000 members now. Um, if you do happen to listen to this podcast and you are a member, thank you so much for being a part. It is absolutely mind-blowing that we're that big. Uh, and we do have a awesome new sponsor on board as well, the, uh, the guys who make the Seinfeld replica set. A lot of Seinfeld fans know about this. A lot of people... Uh, haven't got it um, because it's quite expensive. But uh, if you are thinking about buying it you, for the next two weeks on Seinfeldisms, you can uh, get $100 off the recommended retail price. Um, so just check the top of the page for that detail uh, and you do plug in the uh, Seinfeldisms discount code um, for that offer. And it is only available, unfortunately, to US and Canadian customers due to the expense of posting such a big package across the seas. So uh, check all that out on uh, Seinfeldisms. Indeed. My name is Ivan. And I'm Stephen. And I hope I can see you next week, buddy. Hopefully we get more restrictions lifted in Melbourne and we can uh, record in person. Let's see. That that would be nice. Maybe we'll forget how to socialise and we'll become close talkers ourselves. Indeed. And that'll be real and spectacular. (laughs) You take care of yourselves and each other during these very difficult times and uh, we'll catch you next week. Bye now. (laughs) 